This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Marcus Maloney and Dr. Narwhal's Mating, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Andrew Callum, Anastasia Frolova, and Godino, who all just increased their pledge amounts. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 468 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Cass R. Sunstein. He's a professor at Harvard Law School and is the most frequently cited legal scholar in America. From 2009 to 2012, he served as head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs for the Obama administration. He's also the author of dozens of books, including Nudge, written with Richard Thaler, and Noise, written with Daniel Kahneman and Olivier Sibony. And we'll be speaking with him today about his books, The World According to Star Wars and Averting Catastrophe, Decision Theory for COVID-19, Climate Change, and Potential Disasters of All Kinds. And now here's our interview with Cass R. Sunstein. All right, so we're here with Cass R. Sunstein. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. Okay, so in the world's according to Star Wars, you say that your mother was a big science fiction fan. So tell us about that. She was. So she loved Twilight Zone, and she loved Star Trek, and she loved uh, Isaac Asimov, and she loved Arthur C. Clarke, and uh, whether it was genetic or whether mm-hmm. it was because I learned from her, I, I share her taste. So you were reading all those authors growing up, or? I did. I read them. I, I thought that uh, Isaac Asimov was was brilliant and tricky, and I thought Arthur C. Clarke was immensely imaginative and mysterious, and I loved them both. Mm-hmm. And how about television, too? Like, I know you were watching Star Trek. Uh, yes, and, and Twilight Zone a little before my time, but I caught up. And even now I'm watching Twilight Zone, the original, Rod Serling, with my 12-year-old boy and my 8-year-old girl and my wife. We watch Twilight Zone most nights these days. Are there any particular episodes that really made a big impression on your kids? Um, yes. Uh, uh, the, the one about it's a cookbook, uh, got to them kind of, kind of creepy. Um, and there's one about, uh, uh, actress, maybe stripper who has dreams about going to a room called 22. And you may remember this one in the basement and the room 22 is, uh, the, the morgue and she feels it's really real and it turns out you don't know if it is or isn't and kind of learn that she's crazy and it isn't but then she's supposed to fly out on a plane uh, now that she's free and not institutionalized anymore and it's flight 22 <laughs> she runs off screaming and the plane crashes yeah the one um the, the cookbook one is called to serve man that's one of my favorites it's based on a short story by damon knight so I definitely always remember that one. Uh, that, that is a, a great one. 
I mean, some of them are profound. Uh, there's there's one about a very busy person whose boss keeps telling him it's a push, 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 push business. You remember this? And he keeps thinking that he's in some place. I think it begins with W. Um, you'll, you'll remember this, I bet. And he keeps thinking the train's going there. It's actually profound about peace and uh, labor. And uh, I won't spoil the ending. And there's another one about... Uh, uh, someone who goes back to his childhood, really, and encounters his former self. Um, he walks over a hill and sees his parents when they were alive. And that one has surpassing beauty, I think, about connecting with one's prior self and about roads not traveled. You'll remember that one. That's my very favorite. You say in the book about Star Trek, you say that it makes you think about the enduring questions. Could you say more about that? Completely. So Star Trek episodes uh, could be about, you know, about uh, race. And there's one that's actually pretty lousy about mm-hmm. race, but that it does make you think about race. And there are others about... Well, you're love. talking about the one with the people who are half or black on one half of their face and white on the other half? Yeah, it's didactic. Um, so it's it's not one of the Star Trek's best moments, but... It's uh, does it induces thought about the arbitrariness of racial prejudice and its kind of irrationality that we see if one species sees if you're black on one side and white on the other, you're worse than if the sides are reversed. That seems so wildly crazy. And yet racial prejudice has that characteristic in uh, life outside of television. And some of the Star Trek episodes, thinking of a next generation one about uh, Darmok, where language doesn't work very well between our heroes and people from another planet. And it turns out they think only in narrative. And I think that's profoundly interesting about what it means not to think only in narrative. And I think a, a message is the centrality of narrative to our ways of thinking about things, even if we do have abstractions that aren't about narrative. About the temporariness of love, of course, about the struggle between logic and intuition, where intuition is the hero, and as a behavioral economics uh, wannabe, I'm a lawyer, but I I try to practice some behavioral economics, uh, I, um, uh, I rebel against the idea that intuition is better than logic, that Kirk is right and Spock is wrong. Nonetheless, there's uh, fascination, let's say, in the byplay there. In the book, you mentioned this show called Awake. You say it was on TV for one season uh, in 2012, which I've never even heard of, but you say that it's, it's this great science fiction show. Yeah, if, if uh, I weren't a, a public servant, I'd say something like it's effing good. <laughs> it's really, really good. And uh, the show is about, it's extremely confusing also. The show is about someone who loses either his wife or his son after a car accident. You, you can't tell. And in half the time, the wife is alive and the son is dead. And half of the time, the son is alive and the wife is dead. And these are two different realities in which he lives. And he can't figure out which one is real. And neither can the viewer. And the parallels and discontinuities between the two realities 
are incredibly fascinating. And so there's both a mystery and there's uh, a human center to it. Uh, it's really, really good. Do you remember how you came to watch that show? Because I've, you know, I do a science fiction podcast and I've never heard anyone mention it before. Oh, man, I'm so sorry that my taste in this spectacular show is idiosyncratic. <laughs> uh, the writers whom I don't know, I, I celebrate you and the actor Jason Isaacs, who's also uh, a star in um, uh, a great Netflix show with a brilliant writer, actress, Britt Marling. Uh, the, yeah, uh, the, the, the OA. The OA, apologies, Ms. Marling, that I forgot the name of your show, which I really love. Uh, but Jason Isaacs is also in that show, and he's excellent. Um, I saw it because it got a review in a newspaper in the place where I was living, which was very, very positive. And I think it wasn't, as I remember, over-the-top positive, but the idea of parallel worlds is something that I find intriguing i really like the writer robert charles wilson because he does great things with that and and so that's kind of that's up my alley and uh, you can have a bad show on that topic but this is uh off the charts good emmy award givers give a retrospective retroactive one please to awake Uh, that's cool that you mentioned Robert Charles Wilson, because he's also not as well known as he should be. You know, I read his novel, The Chronoliths, which I really enjoyed. Fantastic. I agree completely. The Chronoliths, I think, is a masterpiece. And and he has a couple others. There's one called that I adore and others that I like. He has one called Mysterium, which which I adore. And he has another big one whose name I'm blocking on right now. That is Spin, uh, Spin was one of his bigger ones. Finn was bigger, and I think it's good. The guy's really, really talented and interesting. Uh, but the one, and there's one called Blind Lake that I really like. But the, the ones I love, uh, Darwinia is very, very good. Uh, this, the Harvest, that's what it's called. It might be that it's out of print. I think that's what it's called, The Harvest. It's, it's uh, something like that. The something, with one word. Now, I'll have to check that out. Um... So it sounds like you read, do you spend a lot of time reading science fiction or you just sort of pick, you just just get to, get to read them every once in a while? Uh, I spend a fair bit of time reading science fiction. I do. I, uh, um, you know, it depends on how much else is going on, but, um, but I do. I read not long ago The Rise and Fall of Dodo by Neil Stevenson and... Um, Forgetting the last name of the other author, Neil Stevenson's the famous one. The other is very, very good. Galland or something, Nicole Galland or something. And The Rise and Fall of Dodo, which is about a parallel world um, in which uh, magic or witchcraft is real and why did it die out? And it is phenomenal. I should say that Stephen King is a, a hero of mine. And uh, a significant percentage of what he does is science fiction. And I, I do think he's maybe the Dickens of our time, even though he does horror and he does science fiction. So there's one that I'm actually early stages of right now, a recent one of him called, called Later, which has a very strong science fiction foundation. I won't spoil anything by saying that it's that the lead character is able to see people shortly after they've died. And he's kind of funny 
playing with the Bruce Willis movie, I See Dead People. And it kind of borrows from that. But Stephen King always comes up with something and more than one thing that's really new. Yeah, you know, early in his career, he had much more of a, a science fiction uh, flavor to his work. Like in, in his uh, early collection, Skeleton Crew, there's a story called The Jaunt, which I've I've just never forgotten. And, you know, after that, he transitioned more and more into supernatural horror. But I would have been really curious if he had focused more on on the sort of, you know, more classic science fiction, what 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 he would have written, because uh, I really liked some of those early stories. You're right. And to define the genre, of course, isn't easy. I like to think that his one about uh, the Kennedy assassination, yeah. 11, 63, I, I like to think that's science fiction. I think it's phenomenal. And The Stand, of course, is, you know, a masterpiece. And its its genre is very hard to describe. But I think we science fiction fans can claim it as as science fiction. Yeah. In the book, you uh, you say that Stanley Kubrick's movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, you call it insufferable and pseudo profound. Did anyone did you get any pushback on that? Yeah, I got hate mail for that. (laughs) And I'm, I'm probably wrong. Um, but it's a little like the kind of thing that you would see if you were the sort of person who at the time would take some illegal substance and go see it and think you'd discovered reality for the first time. I, I, th- I don't think it's good. And I've tried to watch it. I mean, it's amazing, of course, and visionary, I guess we have to say. And Kubrick's talent is, uh, is through the roof. But I think what's it what's it trying to do really? It's trying to make us feel awe. And uh, Samuel Johnson said nothing is more doomed to failure than a scheme of merriment. Johnson may have uh, gotten it wrong. One thing's more doomed to failure than a scheme of merriment, which is a scheme of awe. You you, you get awed by things that uh, aren't aiming at awe directly. They're aiming at something that indirectly produces awe. I think that um, uh, some of the Twilight Zone episodes produce awe, and and not awe in the sense of sentimentality, A-W-W-W, but A-W-E. And uh, Kubrick, I think, I'm sure I'm wrong on this, so the, the many who disagree with me, I know from behavioral science, the wisdom of the crowds and such, but uh, but I, I have my view. <laughs> Um, well, let's go, let's get into Star Wars, which is the you know the main topic of this book. So, one thing that really struck me is how much you talk about the Star Wars novelization, and it just made me wonder: like, are you really fond of the novelization, and do you read a lot of Star Wars books in addition to watching the movies? Not a lot. There was a time when I read a lot of Star Trek books, and there was a writer, Vonda McIntyre, I think, mm-hmm. is a terrific writer of Star Trek books, and I really like them. I read the Star Wars books, not not many, but I read the novelization of the first three that were released um, because I did this book on Star Wars and I thought I needed to read them. And I found them more interesting as a phenomenon than interesting as novels. They're not they're not great novels, but they're interesting novels. Maybe one of them was quite good. Maybe the first one, which was. Uh, written not really by George Lucas, but by some very good science fiction writer. Yes, Alan Dean Foster. Alan Dean Foster, who's excellent, and uh, Alan Dean Foster delivered on that one and did some did some interesting things. 
I, I tried to read some of the Star Wars novels because I wrote this book on Star Wars that aren't uh, canon, um, and and I didn't really get into them. I, I thought they, I didn't think, I might be wrong again, that they had the, um, what is it, the passionate engagement with alternate versions of Star Wars that some of the Star Trek novels do. There's a graphic novel series that you mentioned in here called that I'd never heard of again called Star Wars Infinities that sounded really interesting. You say it explores, you know, what if Wu could fail to destroy the Death Star and what if Wu could been killed by the monster on Hoth? It sounds really interesting. Yeah, I love that. So this is consistent with my enthusiasm for Awake, the TV show that is uh, parallel worlds. And it's fascinating, I think, to think uh, what would have happened if Luke had made various different choices or somebody had died. And and it's it's really interesting. It's very well done. I mean, one thing I thought was so interesting, I think it was in the afterword of the book, was that you talk about how most of the time authors don't like book tours that much, but that the Star Wars book tour was, you say it was a joy. Could you talk about that? Thank you for that. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life, and I've been blessed to have, you know, a lot of experience I have loved having. Uh, so if I write a book on constitutional law and have a book tour, um, the furrowing of the brow of the audience, sometimes the nod of agreement, the worry about what's happening to our constitutional order, the enthusiasm about what might happen. It's a little like people are, you know, focused and intense if I'm lucky, but they're not really having fun and their soul isn't engaged. I have a book just out called Noise, which I'm in the midst of an online book tour about, which is about, please don't go to sleep, go to sleep, mm-hmm. about uh, variability in judgment. And I work really hard on the book with my amazing co-authors, and I am enjoying the virtual tour. But I can t- tell that people are, if we're lucky, they are fascinated, um, but they're not, their soul isn't isn't engaged. The Star Wars book tour, I had no expectation of anything other than Star Wars enthusiasts, if I were lucky, would show up. But instead, what I found is that the people on the tour, they were were like brothers and sisters to me, in the sense that there was an immediate sense of trust and um, uh, willingness to be real, rather than to be you know, an audience member. And so they'd say something about uh, some something that happened in their lives, like a, a child had gotten very sick. And as soon as the child was able to go to the hospital, the dad took the child to Star Wars. Or someone would say, I didn't connect very well with my dad, but there was one thing that really... Uh, uh, defined my childhood, which is my dad took me to Star Wars. And people would talk about their experience with merchandise even. And the the facts may or may not be startling or interesting. And some of the stories were really dramatic. Uh, the feelings were always real. And in so much of life, you know, our connections with each other are an inch deep and uh, that's better than nothing. But on my Star Wars tour, I felt that we were all in some sense family. And and that was a corny word, but it was beautiful. You say in the book that you actually you've gotten to know George Lucas after writing this book? 
I did. So I have some stories about uh, Mr. Lucas. I knew him a tiny bit because I worked in the White House under President Obama, and he had come to some events. And uh, I met him maybe twice briefly, and I was shy. And then after the book came out, uh, several of the reviewers talked about how I must have interviewed him or something. I wouldn't dare. And I think he would probably not love some law professor uh, randomly asking to engage him on his movies. So it never occurred to me even. But I was at a huge party at the White House. Maybe it felt like 700 people. It was probably 300 people. And I saw George Lucas walking toward me. And I was maybe 50 yards away at the party. And I was thinking and kind of desperately hoping that he was walking towards someone other than me. Mm-hmm. So I was looking over my head, to, you know, is Harrison Ford here is, is the president. Maybe George Lucas wants to see the president. But he's moving toward me. And there was no one obvious that he wanted to see who was in my vicinity. And he came up to me. And this is really surreal. And the first words he said were, Uh, in that context, dreaded, terrifying. He said, I read your book. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my gosh. And because he kind of knows Star Wars. And 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 (laughs) he said, and then he said, it's it's not bad. He said it without any joy or pleasure. He's a very real person. There was no Hollywood in it. And then he paused and he said, also with no pleasure. He said, actually, it's good. He said, you got what I was trying to do. And he said, people don't do that. (laughs) Then he he started getting more animated, saying that there are all these books on Star Wars, and they really don't get at all what I was trying to do, what the movies are about. And then he said, you know, your book, it's good. And, and then he and then he brightened. Then he got very cheerful. And he said, but you made some mistakes. (laughs) And I completely loved everything about that exchange. And we talked for a good length about it. And he said, you know, in the prequels, there's so much thought went into those. Just the amount that's that's in those movies, you have no idea. And I looked at him and I said, I kind of do. I wrote a book about this. <laughs> and he, he smiled, not with... Uh, recognition that I actually did know, but with recognition that I had tried. And then not long after that, he and his wife uh, invited me to Skywalker Ranch. And it was a day out there where he was giving friends uh, a tour of Star Wars world. And while I was a friendly acquaintance, I wasn't exactly a friend. I hope I am now. I like to think I am now. Um, uh, and his kind of uh, grace and kindness that had no uh, Hollywood in it, uh, it is fantastic. His wife, Melody Hobson, is uh, someone I had known a little bit in Chicago. I had no idea they were married. Uh, she was a bit of a friend, and I learned later that they were married. And it, what, what I was so touched by was two things. One is, as they drove us around, maybe there was someone who had a big car who drove around Skywalker Ranch. He drove me personally. It was just the two of us. And this was, for me, you know, such an honor and such a joy and so crazy that George Lucas is driving me around. And he told me all sorts of things. And he's he's real. He's not... um, you know, being a politician and 
uh, say he's kind is right, but more he's just a, a great guy. And uh, that I loved. And also he gave me a book uh, as I left. And he, his what he wrote in the book was, May the Force Be With You. And I love that because he's probably written those words 18 million times. They were completely impersonal. <laughs> he didn't say anything sentimental. Nice to spend the day with you. Thank you for writing a not horrible book on my movies. Uh, you know, good luck in your life. Nothing like that. <laughs> Just what he always writes. And I thought, you know, that's that's what that's what you would hope George Lucas would be like himself. That's really cool. I mean, you mentioned um, President Obama in there, and you open the book by noting that he closed one of his uh, news conferences by saying, "Okay, everybody, I got to get to Star Wars." And I have people suggest that he was kind of like the first geek president and that he seems like a Vulcan. And one year he mentioned that he'd he'd read the Chinese science fiction novel, The Three Body Problem. I was just curious what your what your impression is of him as a as a science fiction fan. Yeah, I I know him quite well. He was my a friend and colleague at the University of Chicago before he became uh, president, and he was then my boss, and I've been in touch with him since. Uh, uh, He does like science fiction. He likes anything, really, that's good and creative, and he's he's a fan of Star Trek and Star Wars both. Um, He loved the novels to which you refer, which, embarrassingly, I haven't read. Um, he, He thinks about them, and uh, he's interesting about them. I don't know which he likes more as between Star Trek and Star Wars. I, I tend to think he probably likes, uh, well, not going to say. I will not <laughs> disclose. I think he likes one of them better than the other, but I also think he likes both. I, I gave him my book in, in the Oval Office. Uh, he was interested in the fact that his employee ended up writing a book about this and and he, he said, you know, I'm really going to read this book. And uh, I don't know if he has, but I know he intended to. And that was very nice because the number of books people give him that he doesn't have time or interest in reading is very high. What do you think that idea about that idea of him being a Vulcan is that do you see a different side of him when you know him better? Or do you, is he is he Vulcan like uh, from your experience? Well, I'll say he is tall and thin, like the most famous Vulcan, and his ears aren't tiny, like (laughs) the most famous Vulcan. He also has uh, a very logical mind. Uh, He's very capable of being really disciplined under pressure. I saw him under uh, a lot of pressure, and I never saw him, um, you know, like William Shatner, Captain Kirk. (laughs) Um, but the difference is that he has a, a very, what's the right word, uh, a very feelingful heart. And though he doesn't always show it, um, it's there. So it sometimes surprised me over the years with some words of, uh, of, of great feeling which I knew were there, but, you know, as president and as ex-president, at least for him, it's, 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 it's not uh, every moment. So I, I got hit by a car um, in 2017. And when I woke up in the hospital, one of the first people to call me was him. 
And it, while he's a friend, he's not, you know, he's got a lot of friends. And I, for him to call me after I got hit by a car, basically almost immediately after I woke up, that was extremely touching. And I've seen him in cases where anyone feels bad or vulnerable or hurt. He's he's very kind. Now, you might say that uh, Mr. Spock was actually more like that than he famously is and famously is said to be. And there are episodes of Star Trek in which the depth of his feelings, his passions, explode. Now, President Obama isn't like that. <laughs> that yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I also, you know, I just read your book, Averting Catastrophe, and I wanted to talk to you about that as well. Um, so could you just say, why did you write Averting Catastrophe? Thank you for reading that book. That's a short book, but I can't say it's a laugh a minute, <laughs> um, both because of the topic and because of the approach. Uh, I'll t- tell you the, the reason that when I worked in the U.S. government, I was the, the second of my three times. Um, I was uh, in charge of looking over regulations, whether they involve climate change or uh, asteroids came up and pandemic certainly came up. And the question of how to handle a catastrophic risk is part of the job. Um, it might be at that time a risk involving terrorism. And if you have a risk that is really small, let's say it's one over some big number, but if it turns out to materialize, how much do you spend on uh, reducing or eliminating it? If you spend a ton of money on eliminating every risk of one over some large number, then you wouldn't have any money to help poor people or to fund national defense. So it's it's a very hard question. And sometimes you have situations where you don't know the probability that something bad is going to happen. You just know it's not zero. And then what do you do? So it might be genetic modification of food. It might be climate change. It might be something associated with nuclear power. And if you don't like these examples, just consider them as placeholders for the examples you do like. And the puzzle in the book that continues really to intrigue me, and that's why the book was, though it hurt my head more than any book I've done, to try to get it right. And I had to enlist uh, some of the best economists in the world to help me not make mistakes. Um, I'm sure I did, even though they helped, was um, what do you do when you're in uncertainty where you can't assign a probability to a bad outcome? You just don't know if it's one in a hundred or one in a million. And uh, if you try to do something about a low-level risk, you might create a low-level risk. So think in your own life, if we think we're not going to travel because we're scared we're going to get something terrible happen to us if we don't travel. If we stay home, something bad might happen to us because we didn't travel. And staying home might stultify the imagination or if we exercise a lot, something bad might happen. But if we don't exercise a lot, something bad might happen. And that's policy too. So I wanted to try to create a framework that would help clarify how to approach these problems. And there is, I think, lurking joy in the book about the uncertainty of life, both with respect to miracles. We may try something that will prevent cancer or try something that will produce the internet, or we might try something that will produce catastrophic climate change 
or result in a, a nuclear disaster. That's not joyful. <laughs> I mean, one of the, the discussions in the book I thought was really interesting is where you're talking about status quo bias, where, for example, people, if they hear that a self-driving car killed someone, they'll think that self-driving cars should be banned, whereas human-driven cars kill many, 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 many times more people, and we're just kind of used to that. And it made me wonder if people who read science fiction maybe uh, have a little bit less status quo bias, because some of these uh, scenarios that are unfamiliar to most people, like self-driving cars or AI or nanotech or genetic engineering, are, are not as unfamiliar to science fiction readers. Thank you, thank you for that. That's really cool. And you may clear with that question that my early love of Twilight Zone and Star Trek and Asimov and Clark and others is definitely connected with this book, Averting Catastrophe. Um, if you are... Uh, very nervous, let's say, about self-driving cars, or if the idea of artificial intelligence really scares you. One possibility is you're just right. Another possibility is you're not comparing the status quo with those things. The status quo with respect to driving is pretty bad. Over 30,000 Americans die in recent years each year as a result of uh, car crashes. And with respect to any number of new technologies, including use of algorithms, it may be that we're going to eliminate uh, illness and death and discrimination that human beings, unaided by these things, produce. Um, so I am concerned in the book, obviously, about status quo bias and also about the view that natural is better. That's not always true. And if you love science fiction, then you you find it fun and maybe uh, a little good chill goes down your spine when you think of things that hadn't been dreamt of until maybe 1990 or 2005. And those things in some ways excite you as well as maybe scaring you. I mean, you spent a lot of time in the book talking about this. Uh, it's called the Maximin approach which basically means that you should we should avoid scenarios that have a really bad worst-case scenario, even if the scenario itself is not that likely. And you have a lot of issues with that, but you say that if we had applied this approach to automobiles, airplanes, computers, cell phones, et cetera, that we, we probably would not have built automobiles in the first place, given how bad the worst-case scenario could be. Yes. So there's part of the human mind that thinks when you have two options. Uh, what's the worst case associated with the two? And if one has a worse, worst case, then you choose the other one. So that's a way of proceeding. And we maybe know people, or maybe we are people who are drawn to that way of thinking. There are other people who think, what's the best case scenario? And they might think if one option has a best case scenario, that's the one I'll choose. If one has a best case scenario that's better than the other, that's the one I'll choose. The maximum principle says, let's avoid the option that has the worst, worst case. And that does have um, uh, stultification and potentially horror associated with it. If one option gives you a 99% chance of wonderfulness and a 1% chance of badness, and another option gives you a 99% of pretty badness, and a 1% chance of, let's say, a little better than badness. You should choose the first, even though the worst case is better, because 99 out of 100 times, things are going to be really good. 
And the fact that one out of 100, it's going to be bad, shouldn't lead you to reject it in favor of something for which the worst case is almost as bad. But the best cases are basically bad. So that's a very simple example, but it suggests that if human beings always tried to avoid the worst case scenario, we probably would be uh, sicker and deader than we now are. Yeah, I, I mean, the whole discussion of maybe, you know, how how this approach would have made us not want to build automobiles in the first place was making me think of Ray Bradbury, who famously never got a driver's license. And I think sort of felt that we would be better off without cars at all. Some of the things I've read that he said seemed to point in that direction. He had this famous story called The Pedestrian, which is kind of uh, a little bit about that. But I don't know if you ever if you ever wasn't he an interesting guy with uh, so many different strands in his head including the short story, yes, where we would be dinosaurs if something small happened. The butterfly effect, he's uh, kind of responsible for, I guess, a sound of thunder or something. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Which which is so great. And uh, some of his work is, you know, puzzling over technology. But it's interesting. I hadn't known that he was anti-car. Um his life might have been better if he weren't anti-car, but if he was scared all the time about cars, then probably best to avoid cars. There was this guy in the book you mentioned, Thomas Schelling, and he was making the argument that given that society gets wealthier over time and uh, has more scientific knowledge over time, that we should basically not worry so much about problems in the in, about how problems are going to affect the future because people in the future are going to have a better idea how to handle them than we do and more resources to handle them than we do. I was just curious, what do you make of that argument? It's science fictional, isn't it? And and you're right. You're clarifying for me the connection between some of my academic writing interests and my science fiction interests. Connections are better and clearer than I had known before you raised them. So I find this argument by Schelling, a Nobel Prize winner, uh, surprising and really cool. So what Schelling says is, look, there are a lot of people urging that we do stuff to protect future generations from what we're going to uh, inflict on them. And Schelling says, be careful about that, because future generations are going to be much richer and better off than we are, if history is any guide. And if we sacrifice our resources to help them, we will be redistributing from poor us to rich them. And where's the fairness in that? It's a very cool argument. And it has uh, a lot of both economic and historical uh, grounding. So the idea that people in 2300 are going to be much better off than we are, uh, we can argue about climate change and, and horrors. But bracketing that, and maybe it's not good to bracket that, but bracketing that, uh, Schelling's point, is, is sound. In fact, we can take it a little further and say that the fact that we are as well off as we are now, and those of us who are you know, around in this year are just much better off than people were 100 years ago in terms of health and longevity and, and other things that matter. Um, if we were plopped back into... 1921, putting war even to one side, we think, why is it so dangerous now? 
And uh, the fact that we are uh, as well off as we are now is because previous generations did a lot of stuff that made them wealthier, that made them healthier, that made them better off in countless ways, rather than thinking, let's uh, uh, stem innovation and development in order to protect the future. So you could add to Schelling's point that the future, if the past is prologue, people are going to be better off than we are. You could add the future is dependent on our doing a lot of innovative, creative stuff and not worrying so much about them. Now, I, I, there's another side to the picture, and climate change is the star of that particular show. But uh, there's a lot of force in what Schelling says. I mean, I guess one one difficulty I have with that argument, which I, I think is really interesting, is a really interesting way to think about it. But I mean, you think like we are much more scientifically advanced and much wealthier than Americans were 200 years ago. But if the problem is, you know, preserving the buffalo or the passenger pigeon or something, all our wealth and technology doesn't help us very much compared to people 200 years ago, you know, have much more uh, power to affect change and something like that. Than, than all our wealth and power does at this point in time? Completely. So life expectancy in 1915 or so, I don't know exactly what it was, but I think it was under 65. And right now I think it's over 75. So that's really good. That's like a lot more years. So that's a point for Shelling. But I agree with you that we shouldn't take Shelling's arguments to uh, suggest we should devalue, let's say, endangered species or pristine areas. So the idea of preserving precious things for the future generations, that, that's a good idea. And if they're richer, but they don't have wolves and coyotes and bears, they are, to that extent, significantly poorer, even if they have plenty of money. So please preserve coyotes and wolves and bears. Yeah. I mean, there's also, I mean, you, you you said we're going to bracket the issue of, you know, people in the future might actually be worse off than than the past pattern would indicate if, you know, there's problems with, you know, 100 million climate refugees or or some even more devastating pandemic or, or something, you know, that, that sort of assumes that something really, really bad like that isn't going to happen. Completely. So I, I don't know if Schelling would have taken his argument in fact, I'm confident he wouldn't and didn't to be an objection to aggressive efforts to reduce greenhouse gases. He was for those efforts. I think he was just saying that uh, to think of future generations broadly as in need of our help uh, neglects the fact that it's very possible they will be richer in every dimension than we are. Now, for climate change, that that is, let's unbracket that. So I agree with you that very strong steps to reduce emissions and to increase resilience are a really good idea, even if they're very expensive. And one reason they're a really good idea is they'll be to the benefit of our children and grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, I do think, you know, it is important or it is, it is really interesting to think of like, does the, you know, does the Federation 300 years in the future, how much help from us are they going to need? You know, potentially not, not a lot. Um, not so much, but the Federation can't become the Federation 
unless we do make good choices. Now, some of those choices might be just uh, to have good economies and lots of opportunity for people who can contribute and don't suppress people who can, you know, go to college and get educated and let everyone contribute, respect equal human dignity as the Federation did, will, does, not sure what the right verb there is, but we should do those things uh, partly because they're good for us, but also because they're good. They are themselves good for our, our children and grandchildren. Yeah. Well, when you were talking about life expectancy, one of the the lines in the book that really jumped out at me is you say the downside risk of, say, extinction might reasonably be seen to deserve more attention than the upside potential of, say, immortality, uh, which seems very sensible, uh, you know, at first glance. But it, it did make me think, I mean, um, I wasn't sure how do how do you weigh the the balance of extinction versus immortality, because. You know, if you think of uh, immortality is granting you potentially millions or billions of more years of life, uh, it might be worth a pretty substantial risk of extinction. To you know, that might be a, a risk worth taking or a bet worth taking. It's a, it's a deep question. Uh, I would weight extinction as much more bad than I would weight immortality as good. So if the probability of extinction is infinitesimally small, if you go direction X, and the probability of immortality, let's just stipulate that that's great, some people would disagree, is overwhelmingly high if we go option X. So the chance that we'll have immortal uh, opportunity for immortality would be you know, almost 100%, and the chance of extinction would be almost zero. That, that's a very interesting option to take. Uh, I've, in my view, the extinction risk looms so large that the chance of it happening would have to be, you know, basically infinitesimally small to take an option that poses it. I guess the thing is that you, you, talk, you talk in the book a lot about loss aversion, which is where people uh, dislike losses more than they like equivalent gains and it makes me wonder is is being that is waiting extinction is that bad is that a form of loss aversion because you're you know you're like losing 40 years of life is uh less of a good than gaining a million years of life it seems like that might be a form of loss aversion good so let's talk a little bit about loss aversion which is a very cool behavioral finding so if you tell people if you bring your own bag to the store, uh, we'll pay you a tiny bit of money because you're not using ours. The effect on behavior is basically zero. But if you tell people, if you want to use our bag, you're going to have to pay a very small amount of money. The effect on behavior is significant, which suggests that the prospect of gaining a tiny bit of money doesn't make people very excited, but the prospect of losing a tiny bit of money gets people uh, mad or sad. That's loss aversion. That we typically think of a loss as significantly worse than we think of an equivalent gain. And that can produce mistakes with respect to investing and such. If you're completely focused on potential losses over the course of a lifetime, you probably ironically end up losing a lot compared to what you do. If you were 
uh, more balanced in your thought about one over 10 chance of winning $100, one over 10 chance of losing $100. With respect to extinction and such, I'm not sure if it's if, if loss aversion, which is a form of imperfect rationality, I'm not sure if loss aversion is the problem. It might be people genuinely think that if the human race is gone, that is a, 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 a loss of incalculable magnitude. And there's nothing on the other side that could outweigh it. That seems to me a very reasonable thought to have. So if, if we thought that I, I'd much rather have, uh, I'd be much sadder at a one in 10 chance of losing $100 than I'd be happy to have a one in 10 chance of gaining $100. That's not that easy to explain. Um, you could do some fancy footwork and explain it, but basically it's not that easy to explain. If you say, on the other hand, a one in you know, 10,000 chance of extinction makes me really nervous. I don't want to go there. That might not be loss aversion. It just might be like a one over 100 chance of losing a million dollars. That's a big deal for me. And extension, extinction is incalculably worse than losing a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing for extinction. I'm just, it's just, uh, it made me think. And also, I mean, I, this is something that's come up on the show a couple of times is that it does seem to be a form of status quo bias or the naturalistic fallacy that because death is inevitable, that people try to make the best of it or put a positive face on it. And it seems to me, I mean, there's, it's just not, <laughs> there's not much good to say about it. And that, um, you know, that, that, the in, invention of immortality would have additional benefits in 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 just in terms of um you know no more existential fears about death uh you know nobody having to watch people they love die like all those things are are goods that would have to be weighted in that in that balance that makes sense that does make some sense yeah. if i try yeah um but uh we're, we're almost out of time so we're not going to be able to settle that one right now i don't think um, but you mentioned that you had a bunch of different um, top economists uh, read this book, and I saw in the acknowledgments that Tyler Cowen was somebody who looked at this book, and I know he's a big science fiction fan. I was just wondering if you ever talked to him about that. Yeah, he's a buddy, and uh, we do talk about science fiction and about Bob Dylan and about other things. He's a bit of a hero. Yeah, I'm hoping to interview him sometime because, uh, yeah, I want to talk to expert you know i really like talking to people who are like you who are experts in something but also science fiction fans we can kind of play the two realms off against each other thank you for that yeah um all right so uh, just to wrap things up do you think that you'll ever write another book about star wars or anything like that you know uh life is full of surprises so the fact that i wrote a book about star wars shocked me the fact that i didn't get fired, <laughs> surprised and pleased me. Um, it has to be for writing, I find, something that is going to be something you really want to spend a lot of time with. And so I tried a number of years ago to write a book on an abstract topic. It wasn't science fiction, and I completely failed because I wasn't liking spending the time with it. So I've thought a bit about doing a book on Star Trek, actually. Um, and I thought about doing a general science fiction book and 
uh, if I can figure out an angle that would be good for me to spend time with, then at least there's some hope other people would be willing to spend time with me spending time with that. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that will eventually happen. Yeah, well, I would definitely read a Star Trek book if you wrote it. And when you say a general science fiction book, you mean like a novel or, or something else? A novel, a book about, about science fiction that might be about, you know, what makes it great or what's great about that, the, the, the parts of the genre that are great. I'm, I'm particularly interested in time travel and alternate histories, parallel universes. So um, uh, I've, I've thought a bit about writing about that. I, I don't have the creativity in me to, to tell a story, but if I could get a hold of what makes that interesting, that would be fun. I, I have written an essay about uh, counterfactual history, which is in a book I published recently called This Is Not Normal, in which I end up saying that historians are actually engaged in an enterprise a lot like science fiction writers. Some historians hate that, but I say that so in the sense that they are in figuring out what caused what, they are actually constructing counterfactual wor- worlds. And it's a little more what uh, disciplined and um, uncreative than the best science fiction writers, but it, it's amazing. And it's, it's kind of the same thing. And I might say that Britt Marling, you know, of the OA, she's done some great movies about um, parallel universes and things like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Another Earth is a, is a, one, of, one of her early movies. It's really good. Um, actually, Connie Willis um, says that science fiction, that the genre really should have been called speculative history because that's really what it does. So I think she would agree with you there. I hadn't known that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. So do you have any other final thoughts or just anything else you wanted to mention? Um, I think I mentioned that the author of the book that became a great science fiction-ish movie um, about two magicians, Piper Perabo was in it, Hugh Jackman was in it. And yeah, The Prestige. The Prestige. The author of the book, whose uh, name I'm forgetting. So Christopher Priest. That's it. Christopher Priest has a fantastic science fiction novel about World War II and about parallel universes that is uh, not as underrated as Awake, but really is underrated. All right, cool. Yeah, I haven't haven't heard of that, so I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, he's good. Um, Yeah, great. And so, yeah, we are all out of time. So let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Cass R. Sunstein about his books, Averting Catastrophe and The World According to Star Wars. So Cass, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Cass R. Sunstein for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, 
visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.